Good to be with you. We uh, are going to continue our study on biblical soteriology called the Doctrines of Grace, Calvinism. Uh, over the course of many weeks, we have looked at many things so far, right? We've been in this thing for a while now. I think this is our ninth week, but we had a couple of breaks in between for Easter and wasn't, didn't I get locked down for COVID for a while or something? I think as soon as we started this thing, somebody in my house got it bad on them. And the next thing you know, I couldn't leave the house. So, uh, but we've been in this thing for a little while, and we have looked at several things like definitions in church history. Uh, we looked at the absolute sovereignty of God. Uh, we looked at total depravity, that first doctrine of grace. We looked at unconditional election. We looked at limited atonement, and we spent three weeks on that doctrine. And then last Sunday, we looked at irresistible grace. And we have come to the last letter in the Calvinistic tulip, the P, the P, which stands for perseverance of the saints, perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints appears at the end of this acrostic because it basically completes the logical flow of Calvinism. We've been saying this over and over, over many weeks, that there is a logical flow to this soteriology. And this one is hung on the back end because it kind of brings it to fruition. If God elected totally depraved sinners to salvation in eternity past, atoned for them with the blood of Jesus at the cross, and He intervenes and raises them to spiritual life and draws them to Christ through irresistible grace, then it makes sense that God will cause that same body and group of people, the elect, to go ahead and persevere until the end and reach glorification. That's the logic of it. If it starts with God, it's going to end with God. Calvinism is the only soteriology that I know of, and that's, again, the science of how God saves. It's the only science of how God saves that, that basically maintains what we call monergism. Monergism is the idea that salvation is entirely of God from beginning to end. So you have a monergistic view if you believe God saves through and through. It's all Him. The Lord is, is our salvation. You have a synergistic view if you think that salvation is a combination of man's effort and God's grace. Calvinism is, is really the only system out there that, that describes salvation in such a way to where it promotes monergism. And, and, and the, the idea of monergism is supported by Scripture. We've made this argument over the course of many weeks. And in fact, in a verse that Bruce just read a moment ago, in Psalm 3, verse 8, the very end of that, that beautiful psalm, David cries out and says, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's monergism. That's, in a nutshell, Calvinism. In fact, on week one, I could have just stood up here and said, here's Calvinism. Salvation is of the Lord, dropped the mic and stepped out of the building. Because that's what Calvinism is. It points entirely to God as our salvation. It doesn't give any credit to man at all, and rightly so. So it's the only soteriology that's monergistic. Pelagianism, that's an early heresy. Semi-Pelagianism, which came after that. Arminianism, which we've been talking about. And there's one called Molinism. 
and all the other soteriologies that try to explain the salvation of God, all the other isms, none of them can make this claim. None of them can claim monergism. They put free will and man at the center and place way, way too much emphasis on man. Man is more than just a, just a sinner in, in those soteriologies. It's really up to him what happens. He's kind of the linchpin. And, and then you have to ask, how can you have perseverance of the saints in these other systems that exalt man and leave it up to man? that ultimately teach that salvation is just merely offered and put out there, and it's up to man to, to use his will to embrace it and, to, and then, to, then to keep it and then to sustain the salvation and to carry it all the way through. How could you possibly, under those systems, have perseverance of the saints? They teach people that, that people, they teach that people ultimately bring themselves into salvation. And if we bring ourselves into salvation, then it's our job to keep salvation and hopefully reach the finish line in the end. That's what these other soteriologies like Arminianism ultimately lead to. How can you have assurance of salvation in a system like that? Your assurance would be based on your ability. And any sober-minded saint is going to know that their ability is minuscule, if at all. If the other systems are correct and Calvinism is wrong, then ultimately what we have is salvation belongs to Phil, not the Lord. That's where you go. That's where you land. Arminians and, and other detractors claim that that you know, when we bring ourselves into this thing, when we pray that prayer or flee to Christ of our own volition and will under our own strength and ability, when we, when we do that, then, then God somehow mysteriously seals us so that we cannot fall away. That's a mechanism they came up with to explain away the idea of me having to keep it. God just does something magical for me once I submit to Him and then I can never lose it so I don't have to worry about it. It's a mechanism they developed to combat people like me who say, if you brought yourself in, you can bring yourself out. No, no, hold on a second, Pastor Phil. I brought myself in. God works a magic act like David Copperfield, and I can't lose it, and I'm good to go. Well, that ideology or mentality defies their, the logic of their entire soteriology. Think about that. And they go to verses like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, this is a, a wonderful verse that means the exact opposite of what the Arminian says it means. Uh, it says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So when you chose to believe, this is the Arminian explanation, when you chose to believe, God sealed you, Therefore, it's not something you have to work at. It's not something that you can walk away from or lose. That is how they use that verse. Paul is teaching that every true believer is marked by the Holy Spirit like an official document or piece of property is marked by an authority figure. Think of the stone that covered the entrance to Jesus' tomb it was sealed with a Roman seal, Matthew 27, verse 66. The soldiers took hot wax and they 
poured it into little pools around the stone, and then they pressed a metal signet into the wax as it cooled, and it left an indention. The wax seals on Jesus' tomb sent a warning to others, property of the Roman Empire. Do not break these seals. Violators will be prosecuted. In a similar way, the Holy Spirit is God's seal upon each saint. By giving us the Holy Spirit, God seals or stamps us as His own at our conversion when we are regenerated. And then the Holy Spirit continues to testify, authenticating the reality of the relationship we have with God by making us more and more like Jesus. Sanctification. The God who has thus authenticated this relationship through the inner presence of the Holy Spirit will most certainly protect His people through trials and difficulties. Um, he will do this until He takes final possession of us, His inheritance, on the day of redemption, uh, which is at the end. This is what it says in Ephesians 1.14, the very next verse. So the seal of the Holy Spirit that is talked about in Ephesians 1.13, the seal of the Holy Spirit, it's basically nothing more than the mark of divine ownership. It is King Jesus' way of saying, this one belongs to me, hands off. That's the meaning of the verse. It's not a magical recipe for getting sealed into something that you brought yourself into. It has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with some mystical seal that occurs when people bring themselves into salvation through a proper use of their will and a proper uh, use of faith that allegedly abides in them without any help from God. It has nothing to do with it. You can't use the verse for that. Sorry. It doesn't work that way. And today's Arminians, basically what's happening is they want the best of both worlds. They want the F of Arminianism, right, free will, with the P of Calvinism, perseverance of the saints. They want both. I brought myself in. God sealed me according to Ephesians 1.13. Guess what, folks? I'll never be lost. That's what they say. And guess what? This defies their logic, the logic of their soteriology. If you bring yourself in, you have to do everything else. That's the way it works. You don't bring yourself in, then God takes over. You can't have it both ways. You can't have the best of both worlds. The fact is, these soteriologies that we're talking about, they rise or fall by each point. If you remove one, the entire system comes crashing down. If we don't like the L in the tulip, limited atonement, and switch it to U, unlimited atonement, right? If we switch it from limited to unlimited, guess what? The entire flower falls. It's gone. The two-ip will not work without the L, right? And the L will not work without the rest of the two-ip. If you hear someone say, well, I'm a three- or four-point Calvinist, guess what? They're not a Calvinist. Because once you tamper with one point, 
you lose the whole system. They're based on a chain of logic. If you remove one link, the logic falls apart. And not a Calvinist, there's something else. And the same is true of Arminianism. You take out one point and it ceases to be Arminianism. If you hear someone say, well, hey, I'm a, I'm a four-point Arminian, they're not Arminian. They're something else. What I'm telling you is, is that you can't tamper with the points. You either accept all of them and maintain the logic, or you remove one or tamper with one and lose them all. And today, in today's evangelicalism in America, you've got people, I'm a two-and-a-half-point Calvinist, I'm a six-point Arminian, I'm a 22-point Molinist, I'm a, I play for the Lakers, it's like... I got an answer for you. You're confused. And you don't have to be. If we would just humble ourselves and accept the plain teachings of the Word, then we could maintain the logic and keep the tulip in place. Now, we have studied Scripture to see if it supports total depravity, to see if it supports unconditional election, to see if it supports limited atonement and irresistible grace. And, and I believe without a doubt, in my humble opinion at least, the evidence has been overwhelming and irrefutable. But what about the P? What about perseverance of the saints? Does it have the same level of scriptural support? Does the scripture support it? Is the Biblical evidence for this precious doctrine equally overwhelming and irrefutable? We're going to find out, aren't we? Let's pray and ask the Lord for help before we take a look at the Scripture. Father, we yet again humble ourselves and ask for your help now as we begin to study this glorious doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which is really the assurance of salvation. That's what it is. Help us to, to hear and, and to, to comprehend and to believe your word and to apply it and to live it and to live it out and to obey it. God, I'm absolutely convinced that if we hold to the tenets, to the points, to the doctrines of grace as taught in Scripture, we will have a very, very strong sense of assurance in our salvation. We will know that we will persevere because we will know that salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone, and there's nothing that can stop Him from accomplishing His will. Teach us this this morning. Humble us now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to turn over to John 6. We'll start there. We're going to be moving around a little bit. John 6. We're going to look at verses 37 to 39. This passage should be familiar to us since we've been looking at it on and off over the course of many weeks. We even looked at it a little bit last Sunday. It's amazing how you can find, you know, multiple, multiple doctrines of grace in one text. And in this one, we see multiple layers of the doctrines of grace at least. We need to remember the context a bit here that Jesus was speaking to a large, hungry crowd that wanted more fish tacos from him, not the bread of life, right? He's in a synagogue at Capernaum. 
The day before, he fed 5,000 plus. They somehow figured out that he had left that kind of isolated, deserted place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and traveled to Capernaum. They came and found him and came in the door ready with their orders. Jesus the taco truck. Give us fish, give us pita bread. That's what they were there for. Jesus knew this, right? He talks about him as the bread of life and says, look, that kind of bread's only going to sustain you for a few hours. You need spiritual sustenance. You need to be sustained spiritually. Only I can do that. I'm the bread of life. That's, that's basically John 6 in a nutshell. But I want to look at each of the verses that I'm going to unpack here, beginning at 37a, John 6, 37a. Remember, we're talking about perseverance. Listen to what Jesus begins by saying, all that the Father gives me, stop there, gives is an active verb in the present tense. It's the idea of, of currently giving now, active, present tense. The Father is actively giving people to His Son the words given and gave are, are used in other places to denote a past event. The Father has given or gave people to His Son, right? Past tense. He did this before the foundation of the world. This is talked about throughout the New Testament. We see it in particular in John 17, verse 2, and in verse 6. Those whom the Father gives to Jesus. He gives to them in real time. It's the same group and body of people. He gives them to Him in a sense in eternity past. Here's your bride. Here's the elect. And then there's an ongoing in time, real time, real space giving over of them, presenting of them to, to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is essentially talking about here. All that the Father gives me. He's giving me you uh, apostles here, with the exception of the son of perdition there, he's given me a few in this crowd here. I know who they are, but he's, he's giving these people to me. This is what Jesus is saying. Same body of people that he gave in eternity past that he gives in real time and space. And this body of people, they were chosen to be in Christ uh, well before Eternity, in, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, they were predestined for adoption through Christ before anything was made. This is clearly stated in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. So the Father is, has given to His Son a people, and Jesus says, He's giving them to me now. And, and in that synagogue, that wasn't the only moment that the Father was giving Him people. He's been doing it ever since. Church is big. So all that the Father gives me, think of the elect, think of these people being presented and given to Christ. And we move to 37b, right? John 6, 37b. What will the people whom the Father gives to Him do? He says, they will come to me. They will come to me. Those whom the Father gave to the Son, those whom the Father gives to the Son, they will do what? They will come to Him. There's absolute certainty in this statement. This is actually a statement of sovereignty. Those whom the Father gives, they're going to come. Well, what if some don't come? Jesus, no, Peter, they will come. They're coming, just as you have come to me. There's absolute certainty in this statement here. 
will come to me. It's irrefutable. You cannot stop it. It will happen. How so? Well, we've been talking about this for many weeks. We talked about it last week. God will regenerate each one of those whom He has given to His Son, and He will call them to Christ. He will draw them to Christ. Once He's regenerated them, He will draw and call them to Christ through what? Irresistible grace that enables them and compels them to come freely. Once they're changed, hey, Jesus is the best thing since sliced bread, and they flee to Him. But prior to that, being the heart changed, Jesus means nothing to them just as He meant nothing to me for 30 years of my life. You're changed, He draws you, calls you through His irresistible grace, and they come, they absolutely come, they flee to Jesus for salvation, for grace, for mercy. He enables them and compels them to come. Ephesians 2.4, Romans 1.6. So all that the Father gives to Jesus, they will come to Him. John 6.37c, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Christ will never cast out those who come to him. Why? Because they were given to him by the Father as a gift. Jesus doesn't give back the gifts the Father gives to him, especially the ones he paid for with his own blood. It's a gift, Jesus, but you got to buy it. Well, that's kind of a strange situation. That's the plan. He will never turn them away or cast them out because they were given to Him by the Father. They are the Father's love gift to the Son. Why would the Son throw away a gift from the Father? They don't behave like we do. They don't re-gift. Eh? There's no secret Santa in the Trinity. Well, I don't like this one. I'm going to offload it on the Holy Spirit next Christmas. It's not the way they think. You have to understand how the Trinity works, how the Godhead works. They, they have perfect love for each other, perfect fellowship within the Godhead. There's no relational strife. There's no jealousy. There's no hidden agenda. There's no false motive. There's no silly relational games. None of that exists within the Godhead. Only perfect love, perfect unity, perfect care for one another. The Father gives the Son a gift. The Son accepts it with joy and vice versa. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. Well, the phrase cast out is, is an interesting one. It really has a twofold meaning, right? Jesus says that. Whoever comes to me, they've been given me by the Father. I'm not going to cast them out. First, it means that Christ will never turn away those who sincerely come to Him for salvation. He will never turn away anyone who comes to Him in sincerity with a, a broken and contrite spirit and attitude and desire of needing Him and His grace and mercy. In fact, if that, anyone comes to Christ like that, it's evidence that the Father is already working in that person's heart through the Holy Spirit. He won't turn away anyone who comes to Him with a sincere heart. Second, it means that Christ will never cast out those who have come to Him. What, what is that? Perseverance of the saints, right? These people that, that come to Him that He will never cast out, they are literally eternally secured. 
He's never going to cast them out. Even on your worst days, you who are in Christ, He doesn't cast you out. Your family might cast you out. Your neighbors might cast you out. Your employer might cast you out. Christ will never cast you out. You, believe it or not, are a gift to the, from the Father to the Son. You. You. That's hard to believe for me. The Father only gives good gifts. You gave Phil to Jesus? That's not a very good gift. I'm a bonehead. That's not the way they feel about me. That's how I feel about myself. He'll never cast them out. He'll never turn them away. Never cast them out. They're a love gift to Him. They are eternally secure. Never means never. There's absolute certainty in Jesus' sovereign words here. Uh, John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The mission of Christ was to do the Father's will. This is why He came. Everyone says He, he came to save us. Well, that is entirely true, but that has to be part of the broader will of God. Jesus came to do the will of God. Salvation is part of that. He says in uh, John chapter 5, verse 30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And then over in, uh, even earlier than that, in John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food, my very food, my sustenance, you need the bread of life, but my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish all His work. Wow. Jesus came down from heaven not to do His own will, not to carry out His own agenda. In fact, His entire agenda was the agenda of the Father, but He didn't come down to do His own thing. He's unlike us in that regard. He came down to do what the Father willed for Him to do and to accomplish the Father's purposes. Now that there's a great question that arises, what in particular is Jesus referring to here? What aspect of God's will is He talking about? Right? Because God's will is broad, has many facets. What's he referring to? Well, the answer is in the next line, John 6, 39. Listen to this. He says, "...and this is the will of Him, the Father, who sent me." Listen carefully. Here is the will of the one who sent Jesus, the Father, that Jesus should lose nothing of all that the Father has given to Him but raise it up on the last day. The will of the Father is that the Son shall lose none of those who have been given to Him by the Father. Every person the Father gives to Christ is not only guaranteed to come to Christ, they will remain in Christ and be raised by Christ to eternal life on the last day. When is that? The second advent, the return of Jesus. What are we talking about here? Perseverance of the saints. Those whom He's given to me will come, undoubtedly, without restriction, without complaint, with total joy. They will be renewed. They will come. I will not turn them away. I will accept them. I will keep them forever. Why? That's the Father's will. I think it's kind of hilarious how a great many people in the quote-unquote church, they reject the assurance of salvation, they reject perseverance, they reject 
these sorts of things. They reject eternal life, and yet the Scripture repeatedly refers to our salvation as eternal life. How do you make eternal life not into eternal life? Eternal means no end. I believe in eternal life, but I think we can lose our salvation. You don't believe in eternal life. Eternal life means what? Eternal life. No break, no pause, no hesitation. You go right on through from the beginning on over the finish line. That's what we're looking at today, right? John 6, 37 to 39 teaches it so plainly. I don't know how you, how you miss it here. Actually, I do know how you miss it. If you cling to Arminianism the way it's supposed to be clung to, then it's up to you and you can lose it. That's how you miss it, but that's not what this text teaches. It's a Calvinistic text. Now turn over to Romans 8. Romans 8. This is a, oh man. I don't use the word breathtaking very often. This is a breathtaking text. This, this whole chapter is unbelievable. It's incredible. Romans 8 is, is, is just, it's sublime. One of the most sublime chapters in all Scripture, I think, and that's not to degrade the rest of Scripture. It's just incredible. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, Paul compares life in the Spirit to life in the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and they will die. Those who live according to the Spirit will put to death the deeds of the body, and they will live. They are sons of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's the, the brunt of the teaching in that first 17 verses. And then in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 27, Paul describes the, the future glory of the children of God and, and how the Holy Spirit helps the children of God in their weaknesses. That, that's really the gist of 18 through 27. And then lastly, in Romans 8, 28 to 39, Paul describes the absolute certainty of salvation, how it is literally invincible. If you're not sure about the assurance of salvation, you're not sure that it's eternal, if you're if, if, if you're not like fixed and, 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 and totally fine with the, the doctrine of, of perseverance, if, if you're not sure about those things, man, this is the text to go to. Paul makes eight bold statements about the salvation of God's people, what God has done for His people. That's really what this text is about. There's eight things here. Firstly, God causes everything to work together for the good of His people. And we see that in Romans 8, 28. He says it like this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Right, we've, got, we've got a double-barrel shotgun blast here where Paul launches into the into the, into the believer's security, into the perseverance of the saints by, by making an incredible statement that kind of twists us up because we have a lot of crappy things happen to us in life. And, and, and we're so often frazzled by those things and we wonder 
we even wonder if God loves us in the midst of these things. And, and, and Paul begins by saying, look, everything that happens, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he works together for your good. That's an amazing statement. Uh, Paul, are you sure about this? Because I don't feel like this sometimes. It's a truth. It's a promise. Everything that happens and occurs in our lives, there is a divine purpose behind it. The loss of a loved one, divine purpose, meant for our good. Boy, does it not feel like it. The loss of a job, the loss of income, the loss of a home, the loss of a child. He works everything together for our good. Man, if, if we have a God that does that for us, I'm, I'm pretty sure that salvation is fixed. Because you're going to encounter things in your life that are going to make you wonder if you're saved. Difficult things, doubts, struggles. And he's saying even those things are meant for your good. I'm going to take all of those things, all that nasty garbage, and I'm going to take those things and I'm going to shape and I'm going to form those things so that they bring about my purposes in your life. And those are the best purposes. Hard to accept, hard to believe, truth. That's the first thing he says. He comes right out of the gate with this statement. I mean, this is just mind-blowing. You know, the world does not think this or believe this. Bad things happen, and there's no purpose behind them at all, and it's just everything. They're like Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Everything is meaningless. They have no hope. We can have hope in the midst of, of great travail and, and tribulation, knowing that God will somehow redeem this situation and turn it out for my good. Secondly, God foreloved us and predestined us to become like Christ. Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, foreknew does not mean that he looks out over the corridors of time to learn what we're doing. It means that he knew us in eternity past and he loved us in eternity past. He foreloved us. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that his son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. If God predestined us to become like Jesus, over time and then on into eternity, then what? If he predestined it, it's going to happen. Whatever he's predestined is certain to happen. If he is predestined to make you like Jesus, which is ultimately what salvation is, it has to occur. It has to happen. It's certain. He loved us in eternity past, and he took us and he pointed us toward an end goal, and that would be to, come like, to become like Christ. And there is no way that that cannot happen. No way. It has to happen. It will happen. You may not feel like it's happening. You might feel like you're running backwards. But it's going to happen. Even your backwards running, God's just teaching you. He's just helping you lose a little weight. You just run backwards for a while, a couple pounds fall off, then you turn around and go in the other direction. He's predestined for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. The only way for that to not happen is there has to be a greater power out there that can stop God's predestinating power. Do we know of such power? Is it the devil who was slaughtered at the cross, who had his head, his, his head, his head 
uh, bruised fatally. You know how the people depict Jesus arm wrestling the devil? That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. There's no arm wrestle match there. The devil's here. Jesus did that. Who's going to stop God's predestined plan? Only God can stop it. And God is immutable, meaning unchanging. He never changes. It's destined to happen. You will become like Jesus. And if you're a, a true believer, if you're in Christ, you, you want that more than anything. You know you fail, but you want to be more like Jesus. You're not trying to run away from that reality. You want that. It's just difficult. Number three, God predestined, called, and justified us so that we will be glorified. Hmm. Romans 8, 30. And those whom He predestined, He also called, right? There's the irresistible grace. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Look at it. It's, it's, it's talking like it's past tense. It's a done deal. He glorified them. It's done. In God's eyes, in God's mind, it's predestined, it's done. It's just not actualized here on our side yet, but it's coming. If He predestined and called and justified for the purpose of glorifying us, which is really the, the end result of our salvation, if He's predestined all of that, then it has to occur. It has to happen. You will be glorified, saint. You will be. It's a guarantee. It's predestined. It can't be stopped. Glorification, I think, ultimately happens at the resurrection, right? Because that's when soul meets with a new body. And it's a body that, unlike these bodies, I don't have to run backwards and lose weight with that puppy. I'm good to go. I don't know if I'll look like Fabio or something. I hope so, but without the hair. <laughs> it's not even about looks. It's about sanctification. It's about modeling properly the image of Christ. That's what's coming. And it's, it's, it's certain. It's predestined. It has to happen. It will happen. Perseverance of the saints. Fourth, God is for us, so no one can take away our spiritual blessings and future inheritance. Romans 8, 31 and 32, Paul says, after, you know, running on about the, the certainty, the predestinating uh, power and plan of God and the certainty of glorification, the certain of all these things, he says, what then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, I think that we all know that a whole lot of people can be against us, right? We've got a devil that's against us. We've got Demons that are against us. We've got people that are against us, right? It, it, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual things here. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Really, I think ultimately he's talking about the devil and the demons here. They can be opposed to us, but they can't overcome us. And he says, he who did not spare his own son, the father who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Him graciously give us all things. I think ultimately what Paul is talking about here is that you are so secure by the Father that even though you will have adversaries, none of them will prevail against you. None of them can snatch up what matters most, and that's your spiritual blessings and your inheritance. 
And what is our inheritance? It's God Himself. This is what He's talking about. There's nothing out there that can, that can stand up to God. There's nothing out there that can stand up to us in such a way, in a spiritual way, to rob us of what we've been given spiritually. But I, I think the world can make things real hard on us, so that's not what He's talking about. We can have our lives snuffed out for loving Christ. But that's just the physical life that ends. The spiritual life is intact. It's been predestined. It can't go anywhere. The blessings that we have, the inheritance that we have, uh, those things are untouchable. And that gives me great comfort. Five, God has justified us so our enemy's accusations don't stick. Romans 8, 33 and 34, he says, Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Right? It doesn't matter what the devil says. God is justified. It doesn't matter what accusations he hurls against us, and he does this day and night. It doesn't matter. He says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of the Father, who is indeed interceding for us. He's basically saying the enemies, the, the adversary, because we have a real adversary, right? The adversary, Satan, he, his complaints, his accusations, all of these things he does against us, they don't hold any water. It doesn't matter what he says against us in God's court. He is the accuser of the brethren. He does this all day and night, always trying to malign us, always trying to stain us and make us look look bad and these sorts of things. And Christ died for us and Christ makes intercession for us. He's the greatest defense attorney who's ever been. I mean, you, we are so secure that even the adversary's accusations have no potency. That's what he's saying. He can't touch your spiritual blessings. He, his arguments against you are irrelevant because Christ died for you and advocates for you. Six, God loves us in Christ and nothing visible can separate us from His love. Nothing visible. Right, Romans 8.35, listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Remember, he's talking about everything that's been done for us. We're predestined to become, we're predestined to become like Christ. We're predestined to glorification, all these things. It's certain nothing can stop this. And he says... Hey, let's throw this one out there. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that's a visible physical thing, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, all of the threats of this world align themselves against the saint. All of the armies of the world, in a sense, do this. And they do not prevail. Nothing visible in this world, nothing that we can see, nothing that we can taste, nothing that we can experience, nothing that is hurled at us can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. This is what he's saying. Nothing can separate you, nothing visible. Seven, God may allow us to suffer, but we are not sheep for the slaughter. There was a lamb who was slaughtered, right? capital L, the Lamb of God, Jesus. God will allow us to suffer undoubtedly, and that's part of our sanctification. He'll work out that difficulty for our good. 
But we are not, we are not to be considered sheep for the slaughter. In fact, in all things, we are conquerors through Christ who loves us. This is what he says. Romans 8, 36 and 37. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul intervenes and says, no, 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 no. That's not what we are. In all these things, in all the persecutions, in all the torment, in all the torture, everything they hurl at us, we are more than conquerors. We're not sheep for the slaughter. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us or who loved us. You know, it, it says in the Old Testament, I'm trying to think of where it is, but it says it basically saddens God when a saint is killed. He's saddened by the death of his saints. That, that, that his people here on earth suffer the way they do it. God has a heart for us in that. And of course, he allows it for his divine purposes and for our good ultimately. But but we are not sheep for the slaughter. We're not sheep for the wolves. We're not food for spiritual predators. Nah. We're conquerors because we have a salvation that is fixed. We have a salvation that is eternal, that no matter what is hurled against us, we will cross the line. We will receive the reward. That's what he's saying. Lastly, God loves us in Christ and nothing invisible. Okay, we talked about visible. Nothing invisible can separate us from His love. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, listen to all these principalities he's talking about, these are spiritual things, uh, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from God, uh, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing visible that we encounter can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing invisible that we encounter, principalities, dark forces, demonic attack, these sorts of things. I mean, Satan can, uh, he can, he can take a hundred, he can take a thousand demons and array them against you. And they might pulverize you physically, but they will never prevail over you spiritually. You are actually a conqueror over them spiritually. <laughs> it's amazing. Now, just think about it. Let's summarize. If God causes everything to work together for our good, if God foreloved and predestined us to become like Christ, if God predestined, called, and justified us so that we will be glorified, if God is for us so that no one and nothing can take away our spiritual blessings and future inheritance, if God has justified us so our enemies' accusations have no power, no stick, if God loves us in Christ and nothing visible can separate us from His love, if God allows us to suffer, but we aren't sheep for the slaughter, in all things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us, and if God loves us in Christ, nothing invisible can separate us from His love, how could we not persevere until the end? <laughs> how, how, how is eternal life not eternal life? How can we not cross the finish line one day 
God has predestined and fixed it to be that way, and it will certainly happen. Maybe through a lot of travail and tribulation, but it will come. It will come. Now, what other scriptures, where, where else in scripture do we see this wonderful doctrine, right? Well, we see, we can fly through some of these. We see perseverance of the saints in Jeremiah 32:40 over in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 32:40 says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. He's talking about the covenant of grace, the covenant of salvation, the covenant of eternal life. He says, and this is God speaking, I will make with them, with my people, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I think spiritually he's referring to here. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts because that's what happens when you don't have fear of God, you turn away from him. I will plant my fear in their hearts so they love me and obey me that they may not turn from me. Everlasting covenant, a covenant of redemption, a covenant of salvation, a covenant of grace that has no end. Perseverance of the saints. We see perseverance of the saints in John Chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Again, we talked about this. Eternal life means eternal life. It has no end. There is no judgment for those of us who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Even on our worst days, there's no condemnation from God, only grace, only mercy, only loving discipline. He will carry it out. That's perseverance there. We see perseverance of the saints in John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Listen, and they will never perish. He's talking about spiritually. He's not talking about physical death. That's something we all have to deal with unless he comes back before then. I give them eternal life and they will never spiritually perish. And listen to this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. It's almost like Christ is holding us with His hand like this, and the Father has His mighty hand over His hand. How is somebody, how is a principality, how, how could we even get out of that grip? There's nothing that can break that grip on you. Nothing. The Son has you with His sovereign grip. The Father has you with His sovereign grip. The Spirit is in you and has sealed you for the day of redemption. Somebody would have to or something would have to, to overpower and overcome the entire Godhead to take away our eternal life. And nothing can do that. No one's greater than God. That's what Jesus is saying. We see perseverance of the saints in Romans 11, uh, 29. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't call someone to salvation and then because they're a balloon head for a while, like me, revoke that salvation. No, the spiritual gifts that He's given us, the calling to use those gifts within the context of salvation, our salvation in and of itself, it's irrevocable. God doesn't call that back. He's not a 
how do I say this politically correctly, Native American giver. You know what I mean, right? If I say the other one, then, you know, the White House will be all over me. You're not woke. I'm pretty woke right now. I'm sweating. We see perseverance of the saints in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day or at the day of Jesus Christ. The grace and the salvation that he wrought in you, he will bring it to completion. The author and perfecter of our faith will bring the faith that he put in us to its fullness. And really, ultimately, what faith becomes in the end is sight. Now we believe, but then we shall see. Wow. What he started, he will finish. That's Philippians 1.6. That's perseverance of the saints. We see perseverance of the saints in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a prayer from Paul to the Father to, to keep the, um, these saints entirely intact all the way through until the second advent. He's praying for this while knowing that it's a reality and will take place. We will be kept blameless, right? Because the devil's always trying to blame us. We've already learned that, that his, his blame and his accusations don't stick. We will be kept pure and blameless until Jesus comes to get us. That, my friends, is perseverance of the saints, and that's what he's saying. We see perseverance of the saints in 2 Timothy 1.12. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to Guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What is Paul saying here? I know without a doubt that what has been entrusted to me, this wonderful grace, this wonderful salvation, I know that it will be guarded until the day of the Lord. This is what he's saying. That's perseverance of the saints. We see perseverance of the saints in 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will, I think this is in your bulletin, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He will deliver us safely into his heavenly kingdom. Perseverance of the saints. We see it in Hebrews 7.25. I could read so many verses to you. You'd be like, okay, we believe it. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean to save to the uttermost? Completely. He is able to save to the uttermost completely, to bring it all to completion, those who draw near to God through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, you have the idea of Christ there making intercession for us and bringing us to completion, even through his own prayers. We see perseverance of the saints in 1 Peter 1.5, just a couple more, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's the same point that all the other authors have made. 
We are being guarded, and, and the sign of that being guarded is that we have faith, we believe in Christ, and it's an ongoing faith, right? Sometimes it's up and down, sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak, but it's always there, and that faith serves as a, as a sort of guard, and that, is going to, that faith is going to carry us all the way through. God will carry us and our faith all the way through to a total salvation, which will be revealed in the last time, which again refers to the second advent. Christ's return. And then lastly, we see perseverance of the saints. In Jude, there's only one chapter. It's verses 24 and 25 where we see this. This is Jude's beautiful doxology, this wonderful worshipful statement. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy, to the only God, our, uh, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. To keep you from stumbling. You're not going to stumble out of the faith. You, you might stumble around, but you're not going to stumble out of salvation. He is going to, what is he saying here? Present us blameless before the glory of God with great joy. Perseverance of the saints. Now, perseverance of the saints is, is an irrefutable doctrine. It's a glorious reality. We will persevere until the end. God will make sure that we cross the finish line. No doubt. We will cross it and receive our heavenly reward, which is God himself. It's absolutely guaranteed. Why? Because it is God's will and he will fulfill his will. He's predestined for this to happen. And no one can stop God. Job Chapter 42, verse 2, no one can thwart God. Isaiah 14, 27, no one can stay God's hand or even question what he does. Daniel 4, 35, God will carry it out. Nobody can stop him. Now, we need to be careful, though, not to assume that perseverance guarantees that we won't have trouble or that believers cannot fall into sin and wreck their lives. Christians can stumble, they can fall, even seriously, but they will never fall entirely away from grace. Think of King David. He was a spirit-possessed saint. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, Psalm 51, verse 11, he says, Let not your spirit be taken from me. He was a man who had the Holy Spirit, and in the Old Testament, there was very few that had it like we do now. All the saints today have it. Then it was, the Spirit was only put on certain people. David had the Spirit. He was also a man after God's own heart, right? 1 Samuel 13, 14, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. So he's a man who has the Spirit. He's a man after God's own heart, and yet he slept with another man's wife, got her pregnant, and tried to hide his sin by ordering her husband to the front lines where he'd be killed by the enemy, 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 17. What we see David do is, is just unbelievable. This, this, this is a, a grand, catastrophic saint fall, right? I mean, it, it's, it's so bad that whenever I read that story, I always wonder if David was actually saved because that's, that's like, that's hardcore fall. That's not me getting upset and giving somebody the one-finger peace sign while I'm driving. That's bad. This is sleeping with some dude's wife, getting her pregnant, having him killed to cover it up. This is hardcore. And this is a man after God's own heart. This is a man with the Spirit. 
When the prophet Nathan confronted David, this went on for like a whole year, this charade, and he pronounces the Lord's discipline against David, which, which was really, really bad. He would lose the child and his kingdom would be divided later. It was bad. 2 Samuel 12, 1 to 14, I suppose really, really great falls require really, really great strict discipline. And what happened when Dave, David heard these words from Nathan? He was shattered. He was, he was completely broken. He realized his terrible, grievous sin. And by grace, he repented. And Psalm 51 is his written repentance, his confession. David fell hard, but he did not fall entirely away. Think of Peter, the old guy that had a mouth shaped like a foot. His foot just inserted right into that mouth. He was impetuous and just a bonehead. We've talked about this before. It's pretty funny, but... Jesus would call him by his old name, Simon, whenever he did dumb things. And whenever Peter was struggling to do the right thing but also doing the wrong thing, he called him Simon Peter. The foot-shaped mouth apostle. He was first among the apostles. He was told that Satan was planning to sift him like wheat and that he will basically fall, but he will come back around and restore his brothers and and that his faith would not fail because Jesus said, hey, I have prayed for your faith. He, Satan is going to rock your world, but I've prayed for you that you won't be, fall entirely away is what Jesus says to him. And how did Peter respond? Well, wow, seriously, that's going to happen? Did you tell Satan that you didn't have to do that? No. Thank you for praying for me. I don't want to fall away from you. No. He boasted about dying for Jesus, and he said, I will never deny you. I will even die for you. Eh, reminds me of me. Tough guy, not really. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me. Uh, deny that you know me three times, Luke 22, 31 to 34. And he's saying on that same evening, you're going you're gonna to deny me three times. Later that evening, while Peter was warming himself by a fire in a courtyard, he fulfilled Jesus' prophecy that was given just a few hours earlier, and he denies Jesus three times. And right at that moment, he remembers the words of Jesus from earlier that evening, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly, Luke 22, 54 to 62. He realized that he had rejected Jesus, and not just rejected Jesus, but rejected Jesus publicly in front of witnesses. That he had committed treason against his Lord, because that's what he did. And Peter was broken and shattered by his terrible, grievous sin, just as David was. And yet he was, by grace, later reinstated by Jesus, John 21, 15 to 19. What's the point? Peter fell hard, but he didn't fall entirely away, did he? No. If two spiritual mountains like David and Peter can fall hard, spiritual pebbles like us can fall hard too. Amen? This can happen to us. Perseverance does not ensure that we will never fall. It ensures that we will never entirely fall away. 
doesn't guarantee that you won't have a fall. It doesn't guarantee that you won't get yourself into sin and maybe wreck your life for a season. It doesn't guarantee any of that. It just guarantees that you will not fall all the way away and forsake your Lord. We need to be careful not to misunderstand perseverance and develop a, a do-nothing fatalistic mindset. Well, God will cause me to persevere, no what, so I'll be lazy and sit on my hands and cruise through life. That's dumb. If we do this, we will be lured into every imaginable sin and become a punching bag for Satan. No, God has called us to be steadfast and immovable, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. God has called us to be alert and sober-minded, 1 Peter 5, 8. God has called us to watch out for false prophets, false teachers, Matthew 7, 15. God has called us to watch out for evildoers, Philippians 3, 2. God has called us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans 8, 13. God has called us to examine ourselves to see if we are actually in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. God has called us to confirm our calling and election, 2 Peter 1, 10. Make sure that you're elect. Check yourself to make sure you have faith and fruit. God has called us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12. What am I saying? Biblical salvation is bustling with spiritual activity. It produces perpetual sanctification in the lives of God's people, not stagnation. God will undoubtedly cause us to persevere until the end. This is His promise to us, but this does not mean that we are supposed to negate our responsibility to do what He's called us to do, to do the things that I've listed here. If you're not alert, you're going to get devoured. Yeah, you'll cross the finish line, but you'll do it like this. Why not walk right over it? Our efforts or lack thereof, our obedience, our engagement in these things that He's called us to do, if we engage in them or if we don't engage them, this will not change the outcome, but it will affect the assurance of salvation that we have. If we do what the Lord has called us to do, our assurance of salvation, it's going to be high. If we refuse to do what the Lord has called us to do, our assurance of salvation will be low and we will be plagued by doubts all the time. Calvinism bolsters assurance of salvation because it teaches that salvation is entirely of the Lord from beginning to end. Arminianism does not bolster assurance of salvation. In fact, I, I believe it absolutely destroys it because it places the emphasis on man and on free will. Well, it's up to you. Well, if it's up to me, I'm in, I'm in big trouble. How can a man-centered soteriology produce assurance of salvation? How can it, how can it do that? See, we, we know that there is nothing good that dwells in us, Romans 7, 18. We know that the heart is deceitful and, and desperately wicked, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. We, we know that our thoughts and our, our own intentions are, are often evil, Genesis 6, 5. 
What happens when we focus on ourselves while we know these things about us? What happens when we focus on man? We doubt. We become disillusioned and depressed. We despair. Arminianism teaches us to focus on man, on us. That's a reality. But Calvinism, however, teaches us to focus on God, who is our joy and our strength, Nehemiah 8.10. Amen? I think maybe after doing this for many weeks, you can, you're beginning to understand why in 1618 and 1619 at the, Synod of Dort, uh, at the Synod of Dort, Arminianism was thrown out. It's garbage. Mellow. Mm. That's probably New Age. The doctrines of grace, we're wrapping up, the doctrines of grace are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. There's your tulip. We have learned that they are scriptural, not the mere invention of Calvin's students or the Synod of Dort. They predate any of that. We've looked at scripture. Jesus taught these doctrines. Go back to John 6 and John 10. Hear the doctrines of grace from, from the Lord's own, uh, his own mouth, from our Lord's own mouth. John taught these doctrines. Paul, the Apostle Paul, we've listened to Romans 8, 9, 10. We've been looking at these chapters for, for weeks. Paul taught these doctrines. And guess what? After, after the Scripture was completed in church history, Augustine taught these doctrines. Luther and Calvin taught these doctrines. The, the Puritans taught these doctrines. And, and countless other faithful, godly men and women have taught these doctrines. Guess what? Calvinism has a rich history, but sadly, most American evangelicals know nothing about it. But we now know about it, don't we? When we began this series, I said the most effective way to extinguish the heresy called Arminianism is to teach the doctrines of grace from their source, from Scripture, and to even back that up with history. But what's most important is Scripture. And we have done this over the course of many weeks, including today. The question is, has this heresy been extinguished at RHC? Hmm? I hope so. But rest assured, if you're still in process, if you're still wrestling with these doctrines, if you still lean a little bit more toward Arminianism because that's what you've been taught your whole life, I get it. The elders get it. Most people here get it. We get it. But you need to know that you are safe in this congregation. You're safe here. And let's keep on studying, keep on growing together. The elders will continue to pray for RHC. We are trusting that, that the Lord will align each of us with His Word according to His timing and grace. It's okay to be in process. Rome wasn't built in a day. That kingdom stood for over a thousand years. Some of us have had many, many years of bad teaching. God doesn't seek to, to, to undo that overnight. He will do it in His timing. You're safe here. You're safe here.